Okay, so we're moving for the next two weeks uh, from hysteria to dreams. Uh, and these were Freud's uh, two great objects uh, of uh, attention and analysis throughout the 1890s. Um, and of course, his interest in dreams arises directly out of his clinical experience because <coughs> what, his, what his patient kept uh, telling him about were dreams that they had, particularly in, when he's uh, using his, his first technique of f starting off with um, uh, a set of symptoms and working systematically back through the associations or memories or whatever around particular symptom. Um, then patients would, would produce dreams and the dreams increasingly seemed pointed or significant or, or certainly emotionally urgent. So the question of how to understand dreams um, runs alongside his concern with um, how to under and it becomes and emerges out of his concern with how to understand symptoms, neurotic symptoms, whether historical or obsessional. Um, <coughs> and to some extent, the model of the symptom and the model of the dream are uh, 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 overlapping or similar, um, as it were, conceptual models. Except um, not everybody's a hysteric, but everybody dreams. We all dream every night. In fact, we dream a lot more than we realize uh, as various sort of experiments on, uh, in sleep laboratories on people dreaming. Um, <coughs> we dream during certain phases of sleep more than during others. Um, and the dreams we dream during deep sleep, the ones we're least likely to remember. We're more, most likely to remember waking dreams in the, in the final um, phase of, of sleeping before we wake up. <coughs> um, and they're also ones, I think, that are most likely to be uh, most obviously draw on day's residues, the day before the dream day, as it were, or the dream night. Um, now, of course, the implications of, uh, of Freud's uh, engagement with the dream process is, <coughs> uh, is, is points in one, one way, radically, in a different direction from his assumptions that he's working with uh, around the question of hysteria and, um, uh, and neurotic symptoms, uh, where, as I've said in the last two weeks, his, his clinical aim initially was to, was to track the symptom back to some sort of traumatic, emotionally charged material, bring it to consciousness, dissolve the symptom, and he then assumed dissolve um, the unconscious as it were. That the, aim, the unconscious then was temporary pathological and the aim of therapy was to abolish it okay, and reintegrate everything into consciousness. Um, <coughs> whereas of course the fact that we dream, everybody dreams and dreams every night um, and actually we go mad if we don't dream. If, if, if one of the uh, uh, forms of, of mental torture in th under authoritarian re regimes is to wake people up on a regular basis during the night. Now, of course, it stops us from sleeping, but it also stops you from dreaming. And actually, the inability to dream or the in constant interruption of the dream process can be extremely um, distressing, uh, mentally distressing. It's pointing in the direction then uh, of a permanent unconscious. And you can see Freud sort of bumping into the limits of his assumption in that letter to Fleece that I, that I gave you about uh, where he's in September 97, where he's 
putting objections to his own theory and saying, actually, I don't think I agree with this anymore uh, because uh, I'm unable thoroughly to abolish all the productions of the unconscious in a way that I had hoped. And we saw very simple examples of that where you know, Miss Luciara has her bad smell of burnt, burnt pudding abolished and then she turns up a little bit later with a bad smell of cigar smoke dogging her. The symptoms keep coming back even though they're able to be, as it were, um, dissolved through, through analysis. Uh, Freud hoped he'd solve that problem by finding the X, the, 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 the factor behind um, the, the scene that can be remembered, i.e. the scene that can't be remembered. Um, uh, and he thought in it for a while that you know, it was the question of abusive sexual trauma uh, in pre-puberty and particularly very early childhood years. Uh, but there the aim is still to abolish the unconscious. Whereas what dreams are pointing to is the fact that the unconscious is a permanent structure in the mind. It's formed at a certain point through certain processes, um, but then becomes a formal, a, a, a permanent uh, a part of the mental, stru uh, mental structure. Now, I want, so I want to start just thinking about that, that what happens if, uh, once Freud realizes that that's the case and what are the implications of that, that the unconscious is not temporary, pathological, and to be abolished, but is something that uh, we live with and is a permanent part of our minds. Now, what does Freud mean by the category of the unconscious? Uh, can we get a grip on this for a bit? His starting point um, in thinking about it is the question of exclusions from conscious mental life. <coughs> And that's the, that's the starting point for the category of the unconscious. And the word is unconscious, UN, not subconscious, okay, where sub simply means under, you know. So not something that's just under the threshold of consciousness, um, but something that is radically uh, uh, excluded and in, and in, in, in many ways alien to consciousness. Now the postulation of the unconscious as a separate mental system, cut off from consciousness, begins with the observation then of lacunary phenomena. That is to say that the ordinary data of consciousness are, after all, defective. They're marked by gaps, lacunae, uh, distortions, sudden uh, unaccountable fluctuations of intensity, uh, as well as uh, the, its opposite, striking absences of feeling or affect where you might expect there would be um, feeling. So conscious discourse and behavior are regularly thrown off course, aren't they? We all experience this. Um, they fail of their intentions. Uh, they do something other than we had wished them to do. Um, think of the classical parapraxies, as Freud calls them, slips of the tongue, slips of the pen, uh, bungled actions of various kinds, sudden amnesias or forgettings or compulsive repetitions where we don't know what it is we find ourselves repeating. So to infer the presence of unconscious mental contents and unconscious mental acts is what allows us to re-establish coherent and intelligible sequences in the gappy, uh, interrupted um, and distorted nature of, of consciousness and of conscious discourse and behavior. Consequently, Freud distinguishes between the manifest and the latent content, both of bodily symptoms, of, of, of symptomatic behavior more generally, 
and, of course, of dreams. Now, this latent and unconscious content is to be rigorously distinguished from the conscious manifest content of the dream. Hence, the Freudian unconscious is not the same as, for example, other categories like um, the more common literary concept, for instance, of the assumed or the implied or the subliminal dimensions of discourse. Uh, the taken-for-granted framework, for instance, of shared values that are often enacted aesthetically in the unfolding of the poetic rhythm uh, of a poem, the, the connotations of a set of metaphors in a text, the cadences or intonations of a speaking voice that we need to pick up if we're to be able to read a poem or a, a piece of writing. Okay. As literary students, we, we are trained to be specialists, if you like, with what these paralinguistic phenomena of rhythm, intonational patterns, uh, metaphorical or imagistic um, suggestion. So the Freudian unconscious isn't quite the same as those things, okay, though it might manifest itself at that level of a literary text. Rather, unconscious content has to be interpolated by the interpreter into the gaps and the distortions of the manifest dimension of conscious discourse or behavior. So between the manifest and the latent, there, there exists or there obtains relations of force, okay? relations of exclusion and often violent intrusion. So they're not just relations of meaning, of one meaning to another, where, for example, the manifest meaning uh, logically entails the latent meaning or where it um, hints at it. Uh, the latent meaning, as it were, in irony or satire or something like that. Something is communicated that isn't explicitly being said, but we all pick it up if we're reading carefully or hear, listening carefully. So it's not just relations of meaning, uh, but relations of force, where the manifest excludes the latent. And as a result, the, the manifest is itself, in turn, blanked out or silenced uh, or interrupted by the struggle of the latent content's attempt to infiltrate its way back into the picture, that is, to express itself in speech and action. What we have then is a struggle of mental forces within the sign material of language and of discourse, and more generally of, of behavior. Struggle of mental forces then. <coughs> Freud's metapsychology then has two different moments of systematic formalization, what is called the first and the second topography. And the word topography means uh, a simply a, a system of places. Maybe I can do it here. No, nope, I'm not here. They're all dead. I'll keep trying. Sorry? Do I? Oh, oh right, okay. <laughs> now I'll use this one. No. Nope. I'll give up. Okay, a topography um, is a system of mental places or s mental spaces, if you like, from the, to from, fr from the word topos meaning place or space. Now the first topography, uh, what's called the first topography, is formalized in what are called the metapsychological papers of 1915. Especially the two essays 
the unconscious and repression. They're not set texts on the course, but they're very much worth reading. <coughs> and the second topography, which is uh, formalized in uh, the ego and the id, we'll be looking at some passages from that, chapters from that later on uh, in, in uh, 1923, um, uh, um, where Freud gives us the distinction between uh, the, the ego, the superego, and the id in the second topography. In the first topography, it's a, a different, though um, related, um, set of distinctions between uh, three things. First of all, the conscious, or also referred to as the perception consciousness system. Okay? That's the first category, the perception consciousness system. Secondly, the pre-conscious. And thirdly, the unconscious. Okay, the perception consciousness system, the pre-conscious, the unconscious. For Freud, consciousness is only one transient property that distinguishes our external and internal perceptions from the rest of mental life as a whole. Mental life, which Freud calls the psychical, cannot be reduced to the field of consciousness, which is only one part or dimension of mental life. Consciousness is characterized by a focusing of attention in our sense organs, our perceptual apparatus. Uh, and this is limited in scope and temporary. So our perceptions, both of external realities and of our own internal mental states and bodily processes, uh, they have to be registered, filed away elsewhere in a different mental locale from the space of consciousness to allow for the influx of new material into consciousness. So the content of our immediate consciousness, on a, if you like a second by second or moment by moment basis, is always being replaced by, by new material. Now it's obvious that <coughs> we store up and can call to mind a vast range of mental contents, considerably greater than could be as attended to in the bright light but limited scope of a, of a single moment of consciousness, or a single act of conscious attention, as it were. So there's a vast mental archive, if you like. Um, now, Freud labels this the pre-conscious, material that is stored elsewhere, but might at any time come forward into consciousness, might be summoned into consciousness by an act of will or by association. Okay. It has, however, to be rigorously distinguished from the mental system that he calls the unconscious. Descriptively speaking, the pre-conscious as a mental archive of memory traces can be said to be descriptively unconscious in that we're not aware of it all at any one moment uh, and we're not aware of most of it most of the time. Uh, okay. So it's descriptively unconscious but it does not belong to uh, <coughs> the, the system of the unconscious, the repressed unconscious as a closed mental system, separate system. Okay. Though memories and various mental material uh, from the pre-conscious can be drawn into uh, the unconscious under certain circumstances. The unconscious is what is radically excluded from consciousness by an act of repression. A force, repression being a force that acts to exclude and to block out, usually through the formation of substitutes for what is being excluded or repressed. 
In the dream, this manifests itself in what Freud calls the psychical sensor or the dream sensor. If something is repressed, it is because usually something else is put in its place. For example, and this is a, everyone will have had this ordinary experience, when we cannot recall a name, we are often compelled to produce another name instead, the only one we can think of for the moment even though we know it's the wrong one. And you must all have had that experience where you're trying to remember the name of something, you know you know it, and this other name keeps coming into your mind, and you know that's the wrong one. But every time you keep trying to reach the name that you know you know, but you can't access, the wrong one keeps coming up. And at a certain point you just give up, and then maybe a couple of minutes later or an hour later, the, you know, the one you know you know finally pops into consciousness, often in a completely different conversation, etc. Um, now we all know what that's like, that experience. <coughs> the wrong name keeps stubborn, stubbornly offering itself instead of the name that we can't at that moment recall. So the repressed doesn't just vanish away because it is excluded from consciousness. Rather, it forms a closed system of mental representations of its own, with its own mental laws that regulate the field, that are different uh, from those that regulate uh, the field of consciousness. And Freud calls these laws that operate in the unconscious the primary processes. They differ, as I say, from, the, from the, what he calls the secondary processes that characterize the field of conscious thought. Uh, and attention. The repressed is material that has been worked over in a certain way by the primary processes. And these processes manifest themselves, for example, in what Freud calls the dream work, the work, uh, the mental work that produces the dream. And not only does the repressed not vanish obligingly away, but it seeks continually to return to consciousness. And as I said, to find expression in, in uh, often a displaced or, or symbolic uh, uh, or enigmatic form or in dreams. Now, like the law of Newtonian physics, where you'll recall from school, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. One could say that in Freud's dynamic system of mental forces, for every act of repression, there is an equal and opposite return of the repressed. For every act of repression, there's an equal and opposite return of the repressed. Maybe not immediately, um, <coughs> but at some point. And this return takes place not directly necessarily in its own terms, but indirectly via the detour of symbolic representation, or simply in a displaced um, associated form. Okay. Um, there's the, uh, and the return of the repressed is a, a crucial, a crucial notion, can also manifest itself often in quite comic behaviours on the part of, um, of, of the person concerned. A professional musician friends of mine uh, uh, tell the anecdote of uh, a, a member of a particular uh, musical group that <coughs> at the Wigmore Hall, it's a very posh concert place in London, who had to introduce a violinist from, I can't remember now if it was from the Ukraine or Belarusia or somewhere, uh, <coughs> uh, a Mr. Fluck. And the person concerned was extremely, and got more and more anxious, and of course, was being wound up by his colleagues in, in, in the 
in the uh, musical group concerned that would he be able to pronounce the word properly on the night. Uh, and he got more and more concerned and kept saying to himself, fluck with an L, don't forget the L, please don't forget the L, and worked himself up in quite a state. Um, and finally, when the moment came, you know, he stood up before the audience and we're delighted tonight to have this very distinguished violinist performing with us. So I'd like you all to, to um, you know, greet uh, Mr. Clunt. So he didn't forget the L. But the displacement was from one obscenity to the next, or to a related one, as it were. So it's a nice little illustration of the kind of hybrid nature of the, uh, uh, of the displaced symptom. You know, the ego was saying, you will not forget the L, and you will keep the word decent. Uh, and, but the, the, the displacement took place onto an adjoining sexual term. He remembered the L. So the return of the repressed is what characterizes the dream. So Freud defines dreams as, this is one of his major propositions, the disguised fulfillments of repressed wishes. The disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes. Freud argues, and he argues against the then prevailing neurological view, uh, the dreams are meaningless, sort of waste products of our neural circuits, as it were. And that, that has been the dominant consensus within contemporary neurological um, opinion until relatively recently, where uh, some very interesting experiments <coughs> uh, by um, a South African psychoanalyst who was also a neurologist um, uh, demonstrate, demonstrated that the dream processes that Freud describes uh, uh, are uh, operating during the phases of deep sleep that new, new, until then neurological consensus was that you know they, that they couldn't that couldn't happen in those phases of sleep and therefore Freud is completely wrong and the consensus has been turned around uh, on that issue which is quite interesting so Freud argues against the then consensus and I think probably there are quite a number of neurologists who might still hold that old position, that dreams are meaningless waste byproducts of our neural circuits that happen when we're asleep. Um, Freud argues that dreams are in fact meaningful and that their frequently nonsensical or incoherent character is due to the fundamentally conflictual character of mental dynamics. They are the compromised products of that mental conflict located at the borderline between mental systems, especially between the unconscious and the pre-conscious systems. In other words, dreams are borderline hybrid phenomena. And Freud called them famously the royal road to the unconscious, the royal road to the unconscious. However, not the unconscious itself, but the road to the unconscious. Uh, and a, fo uh, a formulation that's often used in, in, in contemporary psychoanalysis um, I think it was uh, first produced by the French analyst Lacan, uh, is to talk about formations of the unconscious. Okay. Sorry. Formations of the unconscious. That's somebody checking we're actually here. Okay. Formations of the unconscious. Dreams uh, would be, or, or, or neurotic symptoms uh, would be an example of that, in which unconscious processes are at work, but, but uh, in compromise and hybrid form. Okay. <coughs> to interpret a dream for Freud is to assign it a meaning by replacing the manifest dream scene with a set of thoughts and wishes that he calls the latent 
dream thoughts or dream wishes. Now, these can be fitted back into the chain of our conscious mental acts uh, with an importance and validity that are equal to the rest uh, of our mental contents. <coughs> and these ch this chain of mental acts is part of our psychic history. It goes back to childhood. And it is anchored in those formative moments or dramas, even traumas, in which our subjectivity is, is structured and shaped. In his introductory remarks in chapter two on <coughs> the method of interpreting dreams uh, that preface the analysis of the um, specimen dream of Irma's injection that I asked you to read, Freud contrasts two ancient methods of dream interpretation. First of all, there's the symbolic method that takes the dream as a whole. It treats it as a symbolic representation of another content that in some respects is analogous to the dream content. And he gives that example from the Old Testament of the, um, <coughs> where Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream of seven fat kine or cows that were followed by seven lean kine that ate up, ate up the fat ones. And Joseph uh, interpreted uh, this as a symbolic prophecy to Pharaoh that seven years of famine were to follow seven years of plenty and would consume all that was produced during the prosperous years. And so he stored up grain uh, against the famine that was to come. And lo, it was, it was, he was, it was proved that he was right, and um, he therefore flourished in Egypt. Uh, now, this is an obvious one-to-one -one allegorical equation of cows with years. And like traditional literary analysis, this makes sense of the dream text as a whole, as an internally coherent integrated unity. Think of the aesthetic of organic form <coughs> that privileges the formal unity of the poem or the literary text as an aesthetic whole. By contrast to this is the decoding method that breaks the dream sequence up into uh, <coughs> intersections, treats it as a set of signs, a sequence of signs, a signifying sequence or chain as in the semiotic model taken from structural linguistics, where the linguist breaks down the chain of speech to analyze its separate component parts. Now, in this decoding method, each element of the dream is decoded according to a fixed code or key. The arrival of a letter signifies trouble. Uh, a funeral signifies a betrothal, etc. And the essence of the method is that the work of interpretation is brought to bear not on the dream as a whole, as in symbolic interpretations, but on each separate signifying element that makes up the sequence of the dream as a sort of text, if you like. As Freud says, and I quote him from him, uh, <coughs> it's as though the dream were a geological conglomerate in which each fragment of rock required a separate assess uh, assessment, a geological conglomerate in which each fragment of rock required a separate assessment. That is to say, to continue Freud's geological metaphor, the dream is composed like rock strata from different uh, uh, geological periods that have all been crushed and molded together. Uh, and the analyst has to extricate them, as it were. 
The validity of this decoding method, ancient decoding method, would of course depend on the validity of the key or code book that was being used, and these varied greatly. Now, both these kinds of methods in interpreting dreams, at their most sophisticated, were depl always deployed in some relation to the dreamer's current life situation. And I think the ancient dream interpreters always, always did that. They, they took a lot of information from the dreamer uh, and tried to read the dream using that one or other of those methods in relation to the dreamer's life situation. The example given, Freud gives, is from ancient texts, is a famous one in <coughs> Aristander's interpretation of Alexander the Great's dream, where he was besieging the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in Asia Minor, uh, and it turned out to be a long and difficult, drawn-out war. Alexander dreamed of a satyr, uh, S-A-T-Y-R, uh, <coughs> dancing on his shield. And that was a very vivid, very puzzling dream. Uh, and Aristander uh, replaced the visual image uh, of the satyr by its verbal sign. So, um, I can't write it on the board, but think of it. S in Greek, he wrote satyros, S-A-T-Y-R-O-S, satyros, meaning a satyr. And he then interpreted it uh, <coughs> by uh, segmenting it, S-A slash T-Y-R-O-S which in Greek means Tyre is thine, Tyre belongs to you. Okay, so he treated it as a signifying sequence. Uh, so it's a neat example of both the idea of the dream as a disguised set of signs or text and of the dream's visual conversion of a signifying sequence into an enigmatic dream image of some kind. One could take it either as a message from the gods to Alexander uh, or as a wish for such a promise for victory, depending on whether one's an ancient Greek or a modern Freudian. Freud goes on to compare the dream then to the emergence of involuntary ideas in visual or acoustic form once the mechanism of self-censorship has been relaxed in sleep. And he relates these involuntary ideas to the neurotic symptoms such as hysterical phobias and obsessional ideas that we've seen in the texts we've looked at. But he also connects these to, to accounts uh, given by romantic poets such as Schiller or Coleridge uh, to the uh, process of poetic creation. So Freud establishes the distinction very firmly between the manifest content of the dream and the latent content. And the difference from the ancient model of interpretation is that the bridge from the manifest to the latent can only be provided by the free associations of the dreamer himself, not by a fixed code, okay, but by the free associations of the dreamer himself. According to these associations that, that lead sorry, access to these associations leads uh, to the latent dream thoughts that cannot be got by symbolic interpretation of the dream as a whole, uh, for this leaves the dream's facade intact, and so it holds and ensnares the dreamer at the level of the enigmatic dream image or dream scene, for example, the dancing satyr, uh, that is, to what Freud calls the day's residues, the material from the day before or perhaps the more recent past, that provided the occasion or the stimulus for the formation of the dream in the first place. So Aristander's interpretation stays at the level of the day's residue 
of Alexander's dream, i.e. Alexander sieging the city of Tyre. The Freudian question might be, you know, what does the wish to conquer Tyre represent? What else, and what has it got to do with, for, in, for instance, the image of, of the satyr, those lecherous half men, half goats, not to mention shields, etc. So a lot more could have been done with the dream, perhaps. Now, this might be a point to make a brief comment on, on dream symbolism. Freud does increasingly, as, he, uh, as new editions of the uh, interpretation of dreams uh, come out, and he adds various things to it, come to be interested in um, certain fixed symbolic equations because they keep turning up in dream after dream after dream. And we saw him you know, worrying away at this in, the, in Lecture 18 last week where he talks about typicality in symptoms and the same issue applies in dreams where certain things just keep turning up repeatedly. How do you understand them? You can't quite explain them in terms of the unique associational network of this dreamer uh, as against that one because they keep turning up. So what status to give to these? <coughs> and they usually, they're, they're a kind of fixed family of, of, of common symbols to do with the body, bodily processes, etc. Womb symbols, phallic symbols, whatever. Um, but they just keep turning up again and again. Now the point to make about them is that they don't give us the meaning of the dream. Okay? What they give us is some clue as to some of the, of the material that's gone into the dream. Uh, and they're forms of cultural coding uh, that are that are, are common to uh, to groups of dreamers. Um, hence their typicality, uh, and they may give you a clue as to where to look uh, for where the dream is operating. But they don't give you the meaning of the unique set of significances of this particular dream as against that particular dream. So uh, they're kind of like preliminary first hints or clues. Um, but you still need um, the dreamer's own associational field or network in order to be able to gain access to the latent dimensions of the manifest dream scene. So, <coughs> so the signifying chain of the dream text must be segmented into discrete elements. Now, in the case of the dream of Irma's injection, Freud divides it up into 21 different sections. The cut that breaks the dream sequence, however, can only be determined by the dreamer's associations. And so <coughs> the sections of the, of the, uh, uh, that make up the 21 segments vary in length from one word or one short sentence in the report of the dream okay, to quite substantial chunks of the dream. So this is determined by the pattern of the dreamer's own associations, as it were. There's a partial analogy here with the way a linguist will segment the chain of words in speech. Right? He knows where to cut the stream of sounds of a new language he's trying to map. Or, or, uh, 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 but he only knows that um, by having information from a native speaker, okay? uh, a native informer who su supplies um, uh, key indicators the, uh, to the linguist. It can't simply be determined on purely for externally on purely formal grounds. So the role of a native speaker or informant in linguistic analysis is similar to the dreamer supplying his associations for the analysis of the dream. A linguist then seeks to establish word groups or word paradigms as he starts to map the language he's trying to um, understand. Um, 
groups or paradigms to which individual words belong. If you think of a single sentence like, I will go tomorrow, I belongs to the paradigm of personal pronouns, uh, and it contrasts with you, we, they, us, etc. Go, again, is a verbal form that contrasts with go, go would co contrast with come or stay uh, or depart or whatever. Um, tomorrow, again, belongs to another verbal paradigm. Uh, where it is distinguished from and contrasts with t t yesterday, uh, last week, other sort of indicators of uh, time. <coughs> That's one of the things the linguist does, is an attempt to establish groupings and repetitive clusters. And that's also we can what we can see Freud doing in the field of the dreams associations. Um, certain groupings begin to emerge, certain repetitions, certain um, associational connections that can only be revealed by the dreamer. Um, so the dream scene or the dream text will be extremely laconic, as Freud says, very compressed by comparison with the extensive network of associations elaborated by the dreamer around the separate parts of the dream. Uh, uh, <coughs> <coughs> An enormous effort, then, of distortion and compression has been expended in producing the dream. And this is the result of the impact of the repressed dream wishes on the dream censorship uh, that functions between the unconscious system and the pre-conscious. This effort of distortion and compression, Freud calls the dream work. It's a, a labor of, uh, of transformation, mental work, psychical work, as it were. Now, as I said earlier, Freud relates the dream work to the primary processes of mental functioning that take place in the unconscious, uh, in which psychic energy, and which for Freud is essentially libido, an energy of desire or wishing, slides in an unbounded or uncontrolled way along a chain of different mental representations or ideas that have been drawn into the unconscious system. And this energy of wishing slides from term to term, from image to image, without regard to syntax, logic, the law of non-contradiction, uh, that regulate the secondary processes uh, of conscious thought and discourse, which are governed by logic and the rules of syntax. So this constant sliding of unconscious primary processes presses towards some form of satisfaction or discharge by the shortest possible route, and in dreams, <coughs> uh, produces a kind of hallucinatory wish fulfillment, if you like. Um, what characterizes dreams, even though words may turn up in them uh, at times, is a sort of the process of dramatization, uh, of, of scenification, if you like. Ugly word that I've invented to try and underline. So the modalities of the dream work that Freud theorizes come under four main headings. Condensation, displacement, uh, representability or visualization or dramatization, scenification, and secondary revision. These result in the general character of the dream, which Freud calls uh, one of overdetermination. Overdetermination, i.e., there is no one to one correlation between particular elements or signs in the manifest content and their equivalent in the dream thoughts of which they are the symbol. So there isn't going to be a neat, um, as it were, latent or, uh, text that exactly parallels the manifest 
dream text or dr and dream scene. So A, uh, A stands for B or C stands for D in a kind of neat one-to-one -one equivalence. Like, in fact, intensely charged key elements in the dream thoughts may be represented over and over again in the dream, in the manifest content, by a range of different elements. Okay? Uh, uh, while the same detail of the manifest dream can be connected back to more than one of the dream thoughts. So there's this overlapping crisscross pattern where certain uh, uh, latent elements by association uh, get represented uh, again and again and again by a range of different elements in the manifest dream. And any one of those elements in a manifest dream will have connections back into more than one of the dream thoughts. Okay? So there's this overlapping crisscross pattern, uh, which is what uh, Freud is calling overdetermination. An element in the manifest dream uh, is a kind of nodal point uh, in which different lines of force um, uh, intersect. Okay. Uh, <coughs> so a given element in the dream scene, uh, is a point of convergence for the different, different chains of association uh, uh, that the dreamer will produce. And this overdetermination of the manifest content by the much larger number of latent associations uh, and by the nucleus of dream thoughts around which they're grouped. This is an indication that the dream work is not a conscious and rational and consistent process of representation or symbolization, as it were. When Freud, Freud says in a famous phrase, I quote, the dream work does not think. The dream work does not think. And he means that it simply manipulates and forcibly molds the pre-given dream thoughts into plastic uh, form without ever producing any new thoughts or new wishes of its own. The dream work then is, a, is the result of a collision of mental forces and the resulting compromise between the repressed dream wishes on the one hand and the psychical dream censorship uh, on the other hand. In this collision, the mobility and persistence of unconscious desire seeks blindly to find a detour uh, around the defenses of the ego and the anxieties that drive them. And the, <coughs> the general proposition that that dreams are driven by wishes um, is, uh, it sounds like a simple proposition. Actually, it's quite a complex one because, um, and this is where we encounter a time structure that's very similar to the time structure that Freud is struggling to understand and conceptualize in hysteria. Uh, that the notion that uh, there is recent material, the day's residues, that serve as the occasion for the reactivation of uh, 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 an infantile wish, uh, which is encoded in a set of memories or me memory material of a perceptual sensory kind. Um, so there may be a number of different wishes that feed into the production of a given dream. Some of them might be uh, bound up with the unfinished nature of the day's business that's been exciting or agitating or distressing in some way. Now, Freud argues that uh, by themselves, the day's residues are not sufficient to be able to create uh, a, a dream, that uh, it depends on the way in which more recent wishes, uh, and, and more than wishes in the, in the day's residues, a whole range of thoughts, 
plug into or connect up with uh, more, if you like, archaic um, wishes uh, and wish material from uh, our, um, our, as it were, infantile prehistory and, f and formative moments uh, in, in our subjective history. So there's, if you like, there's a kind of, there's always the question of psychical history uh, and the relationship between layers and different time moments and different temporal layers that are being reactivated uh, in the dream process. Uh, <coughs> and uh, if one's thinking at, in, in those terms, even, wish, even dreams that appear to be, uh, as it were, to carry a negative affect of some kind, to be distressing, disturbing, anxiety dreams which wake you up in the middle of them, as it were. Um, you know, Freud puts that as an objection to his own general proposition. How can these be um, imagined as uh, wishful in any way? Uh, and broadly speaking, his argument is it's precisely because what's at stake here are repressed wishes, that their reactivation uh, uh, is, can be intensely anxiety-making uh, for the ego, in, uh, which defends itself against them, as it were. Uh, and so while on the one hand certain wishes are finding a kind of um, uh, symbolic uh, fulfillment in the dream material by connecting up with the day's residues, um, <coughs> at a certain point in the, uh, uh, in the dream process, in certain dreams, um, uh, this becomes intolerable, as it were. The, the ego almost seems to wake up to what is happening uh, and uh, a, a, an outburst of anxiety. Uh, will wake the dreamer up, um, puzzling over why are they so upset about this apparently trivial dream scene, which doesn't seem, you know, to justify the anxiety, as it were. Okay, so at the relationship between uh, the affect or the emotional quality of the dream and what appears to be uh, represented in the dream um, is a sliding mobile one, as it were, and often, and often uh, the opposite of what it appears to be. Um, I was going to go over in detail, but we c can do that in the seminars, the different terms of uh, uh, condensation, displacement, etc. Um, I'll, I'll make a couple of points. One is um, that Freud sees dreams as uh, regression, regressions, psychical regressions that take place on a number of different levels and I'm just summarizing him here briefly. First of all, there's what he calls a topographical regression, a regression from consciousness and the ego and the secondary processes and to the unconscious as a system and its primary processes, so a topographical regression. Secondly, it's a formal regression, a regression from, from, uh, certain, uh, from secondary to primary processes, that is to say from uh, uh, thoughts that are organized logically uh, and um, coherently in, in, in proper sequences uh, to um, strange combinations and composites um, and uh, at what at times might even look like uh, bizarre, incoherent um, combinations of things. And thirdly, a regression to the core wishes and fantasies uh, of our subjective history, particularly to the infantile prehistory of the subject, which are localized in key infantile scenes or scenarios, which are then being uh, shaped and, uh, uh, and, and re-represented, recycled almost, if you like. They act as a kind of template 
um, for the production of, uh, of and the reorganization of the later material that comes from the, uh, the day's residues. Now, <coughs> I've given you um, a, a handout from John Forrester's book, uh, Language and the Origins of Psychoanalysis, and he does a very interesting mapping of the Irma dream. So if I ask you to read it um, uh, between now and the seminar, it's just a couple of pages. Now, bef you might recall the end of the Irma dream. Um, it ends with a very strong visual, s visual representation. He says, suddenly, uh, uh, in the uh, suddenly uh, he's got this linguistic slippage from amyls and propyls and that chemi chemical series. He says, suddenly, um, the chemical formula for trimethylamine loomed vividly in the air. And he doesn't comment on it. Um, now, the notion of trimethylamine comes up in his associations to the dream. This is what his friend Fleece, who lived in Berlin, uh, claims was a key chemical uh, uh, element in, in uh, physical sexual processes in the human body. Um, but, he, but he actually says, what I could see as a visual representation right, was the chemical formula for trimethylamine. And then he doesn't comment on it. Right. Uh, which again is a little bit of Freud's um, tactful self-censorship in, in, in what he's going to tell you about his dream and what he's not going to tell you about his dream because there is of course a whole off-stage dimension to the dream so you might think about this strange way in which the dream ends with and of course Freud is somebody who was trained as a scientist etc so chemical formulas you know, are second nature to him as it were his pre-conscious is no doubt stuffed full of them um, having done the kind of uh, training he's done but he actually sees in the dream not just you know, what would be the letters of trimethylamine, uh, uh, but, but the chemical structure of it, visually represented as a structure. Okay. And this is a fascinating moment that's not commented on by Freud in, in his book, though in his letters he says to various friends, well, it's quite clear what that's about. Um, and uh, Forrester makes uh, a very interesting set of reflections on uh, that final moment at the end of, of the trimethylamine dream. And it's interesting, not just for what it hints at about Freud's private life, which uh, I'm not particularly interested in, but what it shows you about the structuration of dreams, the structuring of dreams, and the way in which, as it were, uh, uh, I'm going back to my theme of scenes, a kind of scenic pattern, a scenic template, a scenic structure, okay, which uh, is reproduced from one situation to another situation. Uh, it gets represented as such in the dream. So trimethylamine becomes the formula not just for a particular chemi chemical process in the body, okay, but for the emotional drama that's being acted out in the dream. So it's a very, very it's fascinating little uh, uh, development of that, of that uh, uh, in John Forrester's commentary. Okay, let's, let's uh, finish there. Now I wanted to find out from you who is, who's been able to get hold of copies, this is for next week, of Gradiva? Ah, quite a few of you. Aren't you clever? Let me just count. How many of you have got copies? One, two, three, four, five of you. Right, okay. So the rest of you are, were unable to get hold of copies of Gradiva, yes? Mine should be in the post, but it hasn't come Right. When did they say that it would arrive? Well, Right, okay. Um, well, I, I, will, I will make some copies. Um, 
let's assume that there's five of you who've definitely got copies then, okay? Unless I hear from somebody else who isn't here. Um, and they should be available, uh, well, I hope by tomorrow afternoon, if you come and pick them up uh, from, they won't, I'll see if I can fit them in the plastic holder outside my door, okay?